Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to a very special edition of our Writers Live series. I'm so grateful that on a beautiful, beautiful day like today that all of you made it here tonight to hear our wonderful author. You see him almost every day on CNN on the, as the network's senior legal analyst, especially during this election year, and we're always really curious sometimes to hear his insights on the law and the government. From Obamacare to the Casey Anthony case, he has been in the front and forward of CNN's legal coverage. Before we get on with the program, though, I'd like to give a very, very special thank you to the Harvard Law School Association of Maryland for co-sponsoring tonight's event. Thank you. Everybody else can applaud. I must tell you, it is wonderful for us to have Harvard lawyers in the house, as they say. Thank you, thank you. We also, and I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity with so many people here to just give a slight plug because we have a great lineup of authors this fall, including best-selling author Cliss Cleave, uh, Little B, on October 2nd, and mystery writer Elizabeth George, who is our featured author in our annual gala, Pratt Presents, on November 17th. So thank you, and we hope you can come. Now, to introduce tonight's guest, we are very fortunate to have a woman who has already made a huge impact on the University of Maryland School of Law and also in the greater Baltimore community. She's gotten right in, and she's very active, she's on boards, she's here tonight, and we just want to give a special Pratt welcome to Dean Phoebe Haddon. Good evening, everyone. I'm delighted to see so many people here to listen to one of the most well-known and distinguished journalists and legal writers of our time. And I'm also happy to be able to join you and hear this author's provocative look at the personalities and politics of two leaders of our nation, our Supreme Court Chief Justice and our Chief Executive. Now, Jeffrey Tubin, you know, is a staff writer at The New Yorker a senior analyst at CNN, and the author of six books now, all of them about some aspect of the law and the judiciary, including, as most of you already know, nine, a profile of the United States Supreme Court, and most recently, The Oath. In both of these books, as one commentator has pointed out, Mr. Tubin's signature blend of insider reporting and lucid, entertaining analysis of legal issues makes this a real treat. The Nine offered a narrative history of the recent Supreme Court and the interplay of individual justices by identifying collateral factors that have profoundly affected their way of thinking on the bench in the context of significant cases ranging from gun control to abortion to equality and speech, cases with extraordinary impact on the direction of our country. It was quite a read. In his new book, Mr. Tubin undertakes an examination of the relationship between the court and the White House, 
with insightful commentary on the competing philosophies about the court and the Constitution that are held by Chief Justice Roberts and President Obama. Now, as a legal commentator, Mr. Tubin has covered some of the most highly profiled figures and news stories of our day, including the war on terror, Kenneth Starr's investigation of President Clinton, the trial of domestic terrorist Timothy McVeigh, and the Elian Gonzalez custody and repatriation dispute, for which he won an Emmy Award. But whether he is speaking to lawyers and judges, or women's groups, or to just plain old avid book lovers, and I've been to each and every one of those contexts, Mr. Tubin is engaging and informative. Now, it might not surprise you, or maybe it will, that such a versatile and erudite writer began his career as a sports writer for the Harvard Crimson under the pseudonym Inner Tubin. He went on to Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review and a freelance writer for the New Republic. Now, after graduation from law school, he began a clerkship with a federal judge. But amazingly, for my benefit, he resigned that position in order to become the youngest member of the Iran-Contra investigation team led by independent counsel Lawrence E. Walsh. He then served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Brooklyn before joining the New Yorker in 1993. And as they say, the rest is history. So I'm really, really honored, and it gives me a great pleasure to introduce Jeffrey Tubin once again to Baltimore, this time to the Pratt Library. He's been here before, but to the Pratt Library, which is one of our city's cultural jewels for sure. And since I'm interested in hearing him talk about the book, not me, I'm going to turn the floor over to him and want to, you to help me warmly welcome him. Thank you. All right, now I've got to go that way, too. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much, Dean Haddon. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. I, uh, you know, it was interesting to you know, hear a little summary of my career. You know, weird things happen um, when you've covered a lot of these cases. When I got off the train today, uh, a woman came up to me and said, oh, Jeff, too, you know, it's sometimes I get recognized, so it wasn't that surprising. And she says, I know you because I was a juror in the Martha Stewart case, and I saw you in court all the time. So, oh, okay, well, that's good. <laughs> And we both agreed that she was, in fact, quite guilty and uh, <laughs> moved along. But it's, it's, it's all history now. Um, <laughs> it's sort of felt bad I didn't recognize her, but I wasn't looking. Um, anyway, so it is really wonderful to be here. Um, in, I, I love libraries. I am you know, a, a big supporter of the New York Public Library in my hometown. Um, I spoke at the uh, Free Library in Philadelphia yesterday. And uh, it's really an honor to be in this magnificent building, in this wonderful city, um, doing a little bit to, to support um, the critical and never more important role of libraries in our country. But I'm here to talk about the Supreme Court, and if I may, I'm going to take some questions later, but if I could you know, anticipate a question that you may be asking um, later on, let's start with this one. 
who's your favorite justice? Now, I struggle with this issue because I, I have had a favorite justice for a long time, but he's gone now, David Souter. Now, I, I, David Souter was a really such a remarkable and somewhat peculiar man. Is and he's, he's by all he's still around and very very hale and hearty. Um, he uh, he didn't have he doesn't have a computer. He doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't. Um, have an answering machine on his phone. He missed Chief Justice Rehnquist's funeral because no one could find him. There was just the phone kept ringing up there in New Hampshire. Um, the um, he doesn't like electric light. He moves his chair around his office over the course of the day to catch the sunlight. Um, yet at the same time that he leads this kind of. 19th or perhaps even 18th century existence, he, he has a real insight into people and how the world works. And, and I'll just tell you one David Souter story. Um, for reasons that remain obscure, David Souter and Stephen Breyer are frequently mistaken for each other. Now, they don't really look at all alike, but just, you know, it's, I think it's symptomatic of how Supreme Court justices are at once very much public figures, but not really known to the public. And one time, not too long ago, Justice Souter, as he often did, was driving from Washington to his home in New Hampshire, and he stopped to get something to eat in a little restaurant. And a couple came up to him, and the guy said, I know you, you're on the Supreme Court, right? He said, yes. He said, you're Stephen Breyer, right? And Souter didn't want to embarrass the fellow in front of his wife, so he said, yes, I'm Stephen Breyer. <laughs> and they chatted for a little while, but then they, he had a question that Souter wasn't ready for. He said, so, so Justice Breyer what's the best thing about being on the Supreme Court? And he thought for a minute and he said, I'd have to say it's the privilege of serving with David Souter. <laughs> now, how can you not love a guy like that, right? Okay, well, to begin, let's talk about the Supreme Court by the numbers, okay? There are six men and three women. It's the first time in history, three women on the court. There are six Catholics and three Jews. No Protestants on the court. First, first time in history for that. Is someone applauding the absence of Protestants? I don't think that's appropriate. Um, there are representatives of four New York City boroughs on the Supreme Court. Sonia Sotomayor is from the Bronx. Antonin Scalia is from Queens. Ruth Ginsburg is from Brooklyn. And Elena Kagan is from Manhattan. Tragically, Staten Island is unrepresented on the Supreme Court. But we, perhaps that will be addressed in, the, uh, in future appointments. Um, there are six, uh, it's appropriate to say here, since there are, um, this is in part a Harvard Law School celebration, there are six products of Harvard Law School on the Supreme Court and three products of Yale Law School on the Supreme Court. I am told, Dean, that there are other law schools in the United States. Um, <laughs> And I do think, frankly, it is absurd that only two are represented on the Supreme Court, but I think that is indicative of something or other. So anyway, those facts, um, I hope those are interesting facts about the Supreme Court. But they're not terribly important facts about the Supreme Court. Here's an important fact about the Supreme Court. There are five Republicans and four Democrats. I will speak for somewhat longer but I've now told you the most important thing uh, about the Supreme Court. You know, it, it has been said, it has been hoped over the years that you know, the Supreme Court is different 
from the politically polarized Congress, which is on the other side of First Street, uh, or certainly the, you know, how the, the, the polarized contest for the White House. But um, that is not the case. This is a Supreme Court that is deeply polarized in precisely the same way uh, that the rest of the government is. And um, that, that's not going to change. Um, and it is not always the case that the Republicans always vote together. It is not always the case that they split along party lines. Notwithstanding the predictions of some so-called experts on the Supreme Court that the, about how the court would um, decide the uh, health care case, as you all know, Chief Justice Roberts joined the, um, joined the, the four liberals in, in ruling for, um, to support the law. Um, I mean, we'll get to this again in this conversation, but uh, I was deeply and extremely publicly wrong about how that case um, would come out. Um, but um, to understand why this moment in the court's history is so important, I think you need to go back in history a little bit. Um, in fact, to go back to the, to the mid and late 1960s, because that was the last time the Supreme Court was really a unified ideological body. In, in that period, there were seven liberals on the Supreme Court. And there really was a liberal agenda at the Supreme Court. Every, every Saturday morning, Chief Justice Earl Warren and his beloved deputy, William Brennan, would meet. And they'd, really, they'd decide, what are we going to do this week? What are the cases we're going to take? What, is the, what, are the, what are the issues that matter to us? And you know, with remarkable consistency year after year they changed the law in the United States. 1964, New York Times against Sullivan, Justice Brennan's famous decision liberalizing, um, establishing important new protections uh, for the press in libel cases. 1965, Justice William O. Douglas's opinion in Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, this case that said um, married couples could not be denied the right to buy birth control and establishing the right to privacy, which of course led to the abortion cases a few, a few years later. 1966, Chief Justice Warren's opinion in Miranda versus Arizona, revolutionizing American criminal procedure and perhaps more importantly, changing television dramas forever. I, I, since I'm in Baltimore, this would seem to be an appropriate moment for a wire reference, but I won't you know, do too much of that. 1967, uh, perhaps the best-named case in Supreme Court history, Loving versus Virginia. What was the case of Loving versus Virginia about? It was the case about marriage. It's the case that said um, that um, states could no longer ban racial intermarriage. It's worth pausing to consider that that decision was in 1967. There are people in this room who were alive in 1967. Am, am I right about that? And yet, uh, it is true that, you know, when Barack Obama's parents got married in 1960 in Hawaii, there were people in prison in this country for the crime of so-called miscegenation. I mean, it just gives you an illustration. It was, it, when, when Obama's parents got married, um, their, their marriage was a crime in 20 states. Uh, it's really just hard to believe how much, and, and it's good to believe how much the country has changed um, uh, in, in a relatively brief period of time. But you never know how the Supreme Court vacancies are going to work. 
Um, Richard Nixon became president in 1969, and four justices left in quick succession. Jimmy Carter is the only president in um, American history to serve a full term and have no appointments to the Supreme Court. It just there were no vacancies while he was um, while, while he was president. But Richard Nixon was only president for five and a half years. You'll recall he had to leave early. Um, but he got four appointments to the Supreme Court because Chief Justice Earl Warren, uh, John Harlan, Hugo Black, and Abe Fortas all left in quick succession, and Nixon named all their replacements. And who did he name? Chief Justice Warren Burger, um, uh, Harry Blackman, uh, uh, Lewis Powell, and William Rehnquist were the four Nixon justices. So there were four Nixon justices named to the Supreme Court, and I think it's worth pausing to remember that a lot of people thought in, 19, in, in the 1970s, people thought the court would move dramatically to the right. But it didn't. And in fact, the 1970s were nearly as liberal as in the 1960s in the Supreme Court. Um, think about the case, big cases of the 1970s. They approved school busing. The Nixon tapes case, they essentially forced Nixon out of office. In 1972, they ended the death penalty in the United States, declared every law unconstitutional, uh, let it back in in 1976, and still um, the most controversial decision of them all, 1973, Roe v. Wade, the case that said states could no longer ban abortion, a 7-2 to two opinion with only Byron White, Kennedy appointee, and William Rehnquist in dissent. So three of the four Nixon justices were in the majority in Roe v. Wade, not um, which, um, you know, I think tells you something. Um, it tells you something about the Supreme Court, but it tells you something about something even bigger than the Supreme Court. It tells you about the biggest political development of our lifetimes, and that's the evolution of the Republican Party. The Republican Party of the 1970s is unrecognizable from the Republican Party of uh, the, um, the um, today. Um, I believe, I think someone told me that uh, there's some relative of Senator Mac Mathias in this, a great Maryland Republican. Um, those kind of Republicans, the Lowell Weikers, the, the Arlen Specters, the Robert Staffords, the Bob Packwoods, they were a big part of the Republican Party in the 70s and to a certain extent in the 80s. And they have vanished in, in Washington. They have vanished in the Supreme Court. And that is a, is a process that went on appointment by appointment at, at the Supreme Court. Now, the big change began with um, Ronald Reagan's appointment in 1980. Uh, because Ronald Reagan brought with him to Washington someone who is, I think, a very underrated figure in recent American history. And that's Edwin Meese. Edwin Meese was the Attorney General, briefly, but he, he was really the legal architect of the Reagan administration. And he said, look, there has been a liberal agenda at the, at the Supreme Court for years, we need a conservative agenda at the Supreme Court. And what, and what was that agenda? Expand executive power, end racial preferences intended to assist African Americans, speed up execution, welcome religion into the public sphere, and above all, reverse Roe versus Wade and allow states once again to ban abortions. And, and Mies, uh, you know, said we need to nominate a lots of young, in, 
extremely intelligent, aggressive conservatives. Um, and uh, one of the important aspects of the Reagan revolution, as some call it, was the arrival in Washington of a group of young lawyers who really wanted to help Meese and Reagan in, in this effort. And who were two of the best and the brightest of that group? John Roberts and Samuel Alito. And it tells you a great deal about them then and now. You know, when, the, when they were um, nominated, some of the papers came out from that era. Um, uh, Samuel Alito, in a memo from 1985, plotting litigation strategy in the Solicitor General's office, he wrote, what can be made of this opportunity to advance the goal of bringing about the eventual overruling of Roe v. Wade? Later that year, applying for a promotion in the Justice Department, he wrote, I am particularly proud of my contributions to recent cases in which the government has argued in the Supreme Court that the Constitution does not protect the right to an abortion. Samuel Alito then, Samuel Alito now. But the conservative movement did not completely control the Republican Party uh, in the Reagan administration, and you saw that in Reagan's appointments to the Supreme Court. 1981, Potter Stewart unexpectedly announced his resignation from the court, and during the 1980 campaign, Reagan made a promise that Jimmy Carter didn't even make. Reagan said, if I have the chance, I will appoint the first woman to the Supreme Court. So there was a vacancy almost as soon as he was uh, inaugurated. And Reagan said, look, I want to keep my promise. Find me a qualified woman, which was not that simple in those days because the traditional roots to the Supreme Court didn't have a lot of women in them, especially Republican women, uh, the circuit courts uh, and, and whatnot. So, so Reagan's people... They went all the way to the Intermediate Appeals Court in Arizona, not even the highest court in Arizona, to find the extraordinary figure who was and is Sandra Day O'Connor. And Sandra Day O'Connor, then as now, was not a cultural conservative, a social conservative, a religious conservative, and that was just fine with President Reagan because that was a part of who he was as well. And uh, she was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1986. Chief Justice Warren Burger stepped down. Uh, Reagan elevated William Rehnquist from Associate Justice to Chief Justice, named um, Antonin Scalia to that seat. No question about it, very conservative justice. The following year, 1987, a key moment in the history of the Supreme Court because um, Lewis Powell retired and... Um, he was, in a phrase that the justices don't like, but I think is a useful phrase, he was the swing vote of his day. He was the, the, the person in the middle who controlled the outcome of a lot of cases. So that was obviously a very important seat. And what did Ronald Reagan do? He nominated Robert Bork. And um, something very important had happened between the nominations of, uh, of Rehnquist and Scalia in 1986 and of Bork in 1987. In the midterm elections of 1986, um, the Democrats had retaken control of the United States Senate. So the chairman of the Judiciary Committee was no longer um, uh, uh, Strom Thurmond, but instead a young senator from Delaware named Joseph Biden. And Biden engineered hearings at, uh, for Robert Bork that were an extensive and, I think, very fair inquiry into his, into his record. And Bork, 
very much to his credit, if perhaps later to his chagrin, he answered all the questions and he told the, 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 the senators what his judicial philosophy was. And the Senate says, said, too conservative. And he was voted down 58 to 42. And Howard Baker, who was White House Chief of Staff at the time, he said to President Reagan, look, we can't nominate someone that conservative. So instead they nominated Anthony Kennedy to that seat. And Anthony Kennedy is certainly no liberal, but he is no Robert Bork either. And uh, that really set the stage uh, for the Rehnquist court. Uh, And um, when I started writing The Nine, my last book, I was inspired by a book that I'm sure... Um, many of you are familiar with uh, Bob Woodward's b- and Scott Armstrong's book, The, um, uh, the Brethren, which was really the first behind-the-scenes book uh, about the Supreme Court. And uh, if you remember, the theme of that book was how all the justices, without regard to politics, really couldn't stand Warren Burger. They thought he was a pompous jerk. And, and um, you know, that kind of contentiousness was really the, the, the rule more than the exception in um, the history of the Supreme Court. I don't know how many of you had the misfortune to hear of a justice named James McReynolds who served on the court from 1914 to 1941 who was such an appalling anti-Semite that he used to get up and leave the conference room whenever Justice Brandeis or Justice Cardozo would speak. Really a prince among men. Um, William O. Douglas, a cantankerous liberal who served on the court longer than anyone in history, 36 years, In the 1950s, he had a terrible car accident in in Washington State. He drove his car off a cliff. And the first first question everybody asked back at the Supreme Court was, where was Felix Frankfurter at the time? Because they hated each other so much, they thought Frankfurter tried to do away with him. And, you know, that was sort of the history of the court. Well, somewhat to my disappointment as a journalist, but to my satisfaction as a citizen, I learned that William Rehnquist was not unpopular among his colleagues. In fact, he was very well liked by liberals and conservatives alike. One reason why he was so popular is he engineered a tremendous reduction in the court's workload. In the 80s, the court was deciding about 150 cases a year. By the time Rehnquist died, they were deciding about 80 cases a year. Do the math. 80 cases divided by nine justices, divided by four law clerks apiece, no wonder they live so long, right? I mean, it's a pretty cushy deal being on, on the Supreme Court. Um, back in the 80s, when um, uh, the, the caseload was so big, there was actually a proposal to add a sort of super appeals court between the circuit courts and, and the Supreme Court. Uh, Warren Berger was actually a sponsor of this idea, and it went to the White House Counsel's Office to be evaluated and the White House counsel um, assigned a young lawyer on his staff named John Roberts uh, to evaluate the proposal. And this is what he wrote in a memo about it. While some of the tales of woe emanating from the court are enough to bring tears to the eyes, it is true that only Supreme Court justices and school children are expected to and do take the entire summer off. The Chief Justice no longer talks this way. The, the, um, the entire summer off looks pretty good from where he's sitting, and the court remains a congenial place. Um, Roberts is popular as, as, as chief, and uh, the justices get along with each other as they did under William Rehnquist. And to see how they get along with each other, 
uh, you need only go to a Supreme Court oral argument. I'm sure a distinguished group like this, many of you have seen a Supreme Court oral argument. If you have not, I'm, in all seriousness, I really do recommend that you go. It is really a fantastic experience. It is um, very interesting. It's, 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 um, it, it makes you feel good as a citizen. I'm serious. I mean, they be, and there is one very well-known fact about Supreme Court oral arguments. And that is, there are eight justices who are very engaged and very well prepared and ask lots of hard questions, and Clarence Thomas does not ask any questions. February 22, 2006, six and a half years ago, that was the last time Justice Thomas asked a question, those of us who go to arguments regularly, we, we you know, we, there's a press section. It's really right next to the justices. And we always look up and we think, will this be the day? <laughs> and it never is. Um, but this is why you need to go. Because um, you will see, you know, they sit in seniority order. Uh, Justice Thomas sits between Justice Kennedy and Justice Breyer. And... Um, Ken, uh, Thomas is not silent. He, he, they, he's talking to Breyer. He's talking to Kennedy. He's passing notes, telling jokes. Thomas is not an isolated or unpopular figure at the Supreme Court. Quite the opposite. He is a very well-regarded colleague among his, uh, uh, among his peers. He is a very influential justice uh, in terms of the ideas he has brought to the court. Um, he is sometimes ignorantly described as like a second vote for Scalia, could not be farther from the truth. He is well more conservative than Antonin Scalia. He is more, he is more conservative than any justice who has served since the 1930s. But he has introduced ideas to the court like an individual right to possess a gun under the Second Amendment, um, the limits of the Commerce Clause that was you know, so close to success in the, in the uh, health care case, um, the, many of the ideas behind Citizens United were Thomas ideas. So he is a highly influential justice for his own bizarre reasons. He just chooses never to ask any questions in court. Now, I think in the Rehnquist years, it's useful to think of the court in two parts, 1986 to 2000 and 2000 to 2005. And the dividing point uh, in the history of the court and in many respects a dividing point in the history of our country is the court's decision in Bush v. Gore. Now, Justice Scalia, as I'm sure you know, is a very outspoken person. Uh, he does a lot of public speaking. He takes questions. And he often gets a, a, a kind of hostile or snotty question about Bush v. Gore. And Justice Scalia always says the same thing when he gets one of those questions. He says, oh, get over it. Now, just speaking for myself, 12 years later, I am not over it. Um, I, I admit to being somewhat of a Bush v. Gore um, obsessive. Now, the last book I wrote before, before the nine was called Too Close to Call. It was about the recount in Florida. 
and um, obviously it ended with Bush v. Gore. And, and, and in the course of reporting that book, I, really, I wanted to interview Al Gore, right? You know, you would certainly want to do that if you're writing a book on that subject. And I tried everything. I wrote, I called, I worked every connection I had, and Gore just refused to talk to me. He didn't want to really relive the experience. Well, just by coincidence, while I was working on The Nine, I met Al Gore at a social occasion. And he had read Too Close to Call, and we were chatting. And I said, you know, Mr. Vice President, you're never going to believe this, but I'm writing another book where Bush v. Gore is at the center of it. I said, I think I must be the biggest Bush v. Gore junkie in the world. And he said to me, you may be second. Uh, which, you know, I think is actually a, uh, probably true. But the legacy of Bush v. Gore at the Supreme Court was surprising. Because in that period, after the court, you know, installed George Bush as president, the court moved to the left. Think of all the big decisions from 2000 to 2005. They ended the death penalty for the mentally retarded, ended the death death penalty for uh, juvenile offenders. They decided Lawrence v. Texas, which said that gay people could no longer be thrown in prison for having consensual sex. They saved affirmative action in the 2003 Gritter case out of the University of of, uh, Michigan Law School. And in case after case, they rejected the Bush administration's position on Guantanamo Bay and um, the detainees there. Why? Why did the court move to the left? Well, Sandra Day O'Connor became more and more alienated from the modern Republican Party during that period from 2000 to 2005. She didn't like the way, uh, she didn't like John Ashcroft. That was not her idea of a Republican. She didn't like the way um, the war in Iraq was being conducted. She didn't like the way the um, um, Uh, war on terror was being conducted and above all Justice O'Connor was alienated by something, doesn't get talked about a lot these days, but I think a very significant event of the past decade uh, which was the Terry Schiavo case the Terry Schiavo case had a big impact on Justice O'Connor in part because it dealt with the issue of judicial independence and perhaps more importantly it dealt with the issue of who should make medical decisions for a critically ill person And it was at precisely that time that Justice O'Connor's beloved husband, John, was falling into the grip of Alzheimer's disease. And she ultimately left in 2005 um, to take care of him. And um, in a conversation I recount in the oath, right before she left, she spoke to David Souter in the hallway of the Supreme Court. And she said, why is our party destroying the country? Uh, I thought we were the, con- the, the party of balanced budgets. I thought we were the party that didn't get involved in foolish wars. And she said, Barry Goldwater never cared who you slept with. Um, but um, she, did, um, she did leave the court, and she was replaced by Samuel Alito. John Roberts replaced uh, William Rehnquist, and the court took on the, the, the court began to reflect the modern Republican Party. Think about the last three justices to leave the Supreme Court. Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souter, and John Paul Stevens. Three more different people you will never encounter. Sandra Day O'Connor, this tall, charismatic, outgoing former politician from Arizona. Uh, David Souter, shy, reclusive bachelor from New Hampshire. 
John Paul Stevens, wily antitrust lawyer from Chicago. Different parts of the country, different personalities, but one important thing in common. All moderate Republicans who left the Supreme Court completely alienated from the modern Republican Party. And two of them so alienated that they left the court under a Democratic president because that's whom they felt more, more congenial with. And the court in these past few years has reflected uh, the modern Republican Party, whether it is striking down um, the uh, desegregation plans in Louisville, in, 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 in uh, Louisville and Seattle, uh, whether it is uh, ending gun control in Washington, D.C. and in Chicago, um, and of course the signature decision of the, Rehnquist court, uh, the, of the Roberts Court, Citizens United, really revolutionizing um, the First Amendment and the nature of American political campaigns, uh, all of which uh, led to um, the drama of this spring, which was the healthcare case. And uh, in case you missed it, uh, <laughs> I, I was pretty wrong about how that all turned out, uh, and uh, rather publicly. Um, but I did have the opportunity to um, uh, you know, re report about the decision in, in, the, in the oath and, and just to anticipate a question before we move to questions. You know, the question that so often gets asked is why? Why did Chief Justice Roberts side uh, with the four Democratic appointees and, and save the law? Well, I think there are three reasons for that. One is, and I think it's always important to say this about Supreme Court justices, Take what he said at face value. He was, he was persuaded by the argument that, the, um, that uh, this was, and it, the, he joined the four his four conservative colleagues in finding the, the, the individual mandate a um, uh, violation of the Commerce Clause. Congress has exceeded its powers under the Commerce Clause, but he was persuaded, uniquely among them, that it was a legitimate exercise of the taxing power. So we can just take what he said at face value. But I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, there is also the question of the, the conservative agenda at the Supreme Court, which I mentioned previously. You know, expand executive power, uh, end racial preferences, uh, reverse Roe versus Wade. Absent among those is a mandate to uh, limit the power of the federal government. You know, the, the idea of the individual mandate was an idea that conservatives came up with in the early 1990s. And that idea percolated around for years. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama argued about it during the cam campaign in 2008. Remember, Hillary was the one who was for the individual mandate. Obama was the one who was against it. Once he got the nomination, he adopted her position. Through all those years of debate on the individual mandate, no one, and I mean no one, suggested that it was unconstitutional. And this is a story I tell in the oath that it was very late in the process that anyone even came up with the idea that it was unconstitutional. And I think, frankly, that tells you something about the merits of the argument. You would think that people talking about this argument for months and months and months, someone would have noticed if it was unconstitutional, but apparently no one did. And I think Roberts recognized that this was really a departure from even the conservative traditional agenda at the court. 
But I think the most important reason Roberts voted the way he did was his interest in the institutional reputation of the Supreme Court. This case, the, the, the health care case, was in many respects the third in a trilogy of cases. Bush v. Gore in 2000, Citizens United in 2010, and the Obamacare case in 2012. In those first two cases, five Republican appointees united to dash the hopes of Democrats. Had Roberts joined his four conservative colleagues, this would have been the last one, the last in that series, and the again five Republicans against um, four Democrats. And uh, Roberts would have been, I think, correctly uh, criticized as, uh, frankly, a, a poli- as, as a more political than a legal, for a more political than a legal judgment. Um, that um, he, the, the court would have been seen so much as a political body that um, his reputation and perhaps the court's reputation never would have, um, would have recovered. Now, by voting as he did, he has insulated himself and insulated the court in many respects from accusations that it is largely a political body. At the same time, I assure you, uh, John Roberts has not discovered his inner moderate. As, as the court considers more cases, as the court just this, this next term uh, looks at the issue again of affirmative action in, in, in admissions, uh, in a case out of the University of Texas, I think the court is very likely to limit or, very, or perhaps even overrule Justice O'Connor's opinion in the Gretter case from 2003. Um, they are going to look at the future of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, again, something Ju- Chief Justice Roberts has been very skeptical of. So Roberts has not uh, become a moderate. He has preserved his position as the preeminent conservative on the court. And I look forward to watching how it all turns out with you. And perhaps we can take some questions now. Thank you. Um, how do you want to do, do this? Sorry? Okay, we have a microphone. Raise your hand and uh, check that gentleman here. We have just one microphone? Okay. What's been the fallout? Okay, hold hold okay. the microphone. Since uh, the healthcare opinion, um, how has Justice Roberts been treated by his fellow conservatives? You know, um, one of the things Supreme Court justices learn very quickly is that they are all repeat players. You know, it does not pay to hold grudges at the Supreme Court. They have a tremendous institutional interest in getting along with each other. And they do get angry. And Justice Scalia was angry. And Justice Thomas was frustrated. But you know what? They dealt with it. And they they will deal with it. So I think the fallout is really minimal. Uh, in terms of the relationships of the justices. Uh, uh, They are all way too smart to let uh, a defeat, even a very important and a bitter defeat like this one, uh, affect their relationships with each other. So I I just think that the fallout is not not much. Uh, You want to pass? Is someone going to pass the? Okay, yeah, why why don't you? Okay, go ahead. Sorry. In light of your comments... Could you hold it a little closer? Sorry. In light of your comments earlier about how seemingly recent it is that an African-American and a white couple couldn't marry. 
Could you comment on what you think is going to happen in terms of gay marriage in the Supreme Court? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a huge issue. And, and the, the, this is a very important moment at the Supreme Court uh, for this. There are, without getting too, too technical, there are two cases, two kinds of cases heading to the Supreme Court, basically simultaneously. There is the challenge, the main cases from Massachusetts, to the Defensive Marriage Act, DOMA. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the details, the Defensive Marriage Act, passed in 1996, says the federal government will not recognize same-sex marriages, even in states where it's legal. And so the case out of Massachusetts is about uh, two women who had been married, and they were as married as any straight couple in, in Massachusetts, and one of them died. And those of you, many of you know, I'm sure, that under the IRS rules, money passes tax-free from one spouse to the other when they die. Well, the IRS is under DOMA, so they, they don't recognize the marriage. So the surviving woman had to pay a substantial amount of taxes on that on that. And, and that's really what the Defense of Marriage Act case is all about. Now, the other big case is the Proposition 8 case from California. And that is a case, in general terms, which basically says, does the Constitution guarantee um, gay people the right to get married just the way straight people have the right to get married? It is a case that looked at, in one way, is about same-sex marriage in every state in the union. Because if they were to rule, you know, six states have same-sex marriage now. This is a case that says the other 44 states have to start allowing same-sex marriage. It is a much more uh, dramatic and ambitious case. And it is a much more politically incendiary case than the DOMA case. I mean, the thing about DOMA that is worth remembering, it only applies, its only significance is in states that already have same-sex marriage. Rule, striking down DOMA would not force any state to, to, to have same-sex marriage. The Proposition 8 case might well do that. And I think um, the court, especially the liberals, are very wary of the political risks, even those who think that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment does guarantee a right to same-sex marriage, they don't want to get too far ahead of the country. I mean, just imagine what it would be like, you know, the day after Alabama and Texas were told every clerk in, in every county, by the way, you have to start giving gay people marriage licenses. I mean, imagine what that, the reaction to that would be like. Now, maybe it's the job of the Supreme Court to say, you know what, we don't care about your delicate sensitivities, equal rights are equal rights, and it's time to start honoring them. I think that's, that's, a rough, that, that's a rough deal. I think, so, anyway, I apologize for a long answer. I think they'll take the DOMA case. I think they will very likely overturn the DOMA case. Anthony Kennedy, though usually conservative, is the author of the two most important gay rights opinions, Lawrence v. Texas and the Romer case out of Colorado. I think they'll take that case. I think they will deny certiorari. They will not review the Proposition 8 case, which means that same-sex marriage will come to California. It'll mean that about 20%, 25% of the American people will live in states that have same-sex marriage. Um, after this election, I know 
Maryland is, uh, you know, Maryland is, uh, it's on the ballot here, it's on the ballot in Washington, it's on the ballot in Minnesota. So, I mean, I think the court will be tolerant of gradual change when it comes to the right to marriage, but DOMA is an easier case. Hi there. Um, Could you hold the microphone a little closer? I can, yes. I have two questions. Um, The first is, on your reporting uh, on the Affordable Care Act, I wonder... um, if you were able to, either during the writing of the book and reporting of the book, or since then, if you had an opportunity to talk to Chief Justice Roberts about his reason for um, deciding differently um, or making a uh, flip-flopping on the case, or however you want to put it, or if you talked to some of his law clerks, or if, if your thinking behind his reasoning for changing his decision was just sort of what you know about him or supposition on your part. And then now that that decision has been made, is there another, is there a case, and there are some big, as you noted, there are some big cases that are coming up. Does he kind of have one in his back pocket now, or maybe they, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I think about the cases that are coming, and I wonder what the impact of the ACA decision would have on on those, if any. Well, my deal with my sources, both justices and law clerks, is I don't talk about who who spoke to me, and and, um, so... Uh, there, there's that. You know, this issue of flip-flopping, um, you know, one of the well-established rules at the Supreme Court is that uh, no decision is final until the justices actually announce it. And every justice, um, once or twice a year, or, you know, give or take, changes their mind over the course of a decision, even sometimes the justice who was assigned to write the majority opinion. So, you know, this, this, there, there has, has been a suggestion that, you know, flip-flopping is somehow improper or is, it's not, not at all. And, and the, the justices uh, all say that. You know, as for a case in his back pocket, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I, I don't think he thinks that way. I don't think the justices think that way. But, you know, as I said, you know, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts was a conservative before June 28th, and he's now, he's still a conservative. And, and so as we look forward to his decision, for example, in the, in the affirmative action case, uh, I, I think, you know, we can expect to see the judicial conservative that we've seen, you know, for his six years as chief. Uh, yes. Yeah, Mr. Tubin, given the fact that the argument that the Obamacare or the health care law was actually a tax, how, how much credit do we owe the Solicitor General for actually introducing that kind of the last unopened parachute? Nobody talks about that. But obviously, uh, Justice Roberts uh, felt some kind of amenity to that. So how, why didn't he get any credit for it? Well, no, no one was more critical of Donald Verrilli's argument in the Supreme Court um, than I was. And no one has had a greater feast of humble pie uh, than I have in, in, um, in recognizing that uh, he was, that Donald Verrilli was very much the Solicitor General, the winner uh, in that case. Now, I, and, and I completely acknowledge that, uh, completely acknowledge that. However, it wasn't Donald Verrilli who, who invented the, the tax argument. That, that argument had been raised by the government throughout the litigation in leading up to the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, it had been a subsidiary argument. It had never been adopted by any of the courts um, that had addressed the issue so f- to, to, that, 
to that point, but it had always been made as an alternative argument by, by the government in defense of the law. But, you know, Verrilli does deserve credit for raising it. Actually, you know, a, a bit of an unsung hero in all of this is Sonia Sotomayor, who really fought during the oral argument. This is a story I, I tell in, in, in the nine, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in the oath, um, is, you know, during the oral argument, she, I mean, the Supreme Court oral arguments, as, as I'm sure you know, they're really sort of rock'em sock'em affairs. I mean, they ask a million different questions, and it's sometimes very hard for the justices to get a word in edgewise. And Sotomayor kept trying to ask a question about, about the tax argument. And, and she was interrupted two or, two or three times. And finally, she broke through and said, let's hear something about the taxing argument. And as, as we all know, it turned out to be the winning argument. So, you know, I think that's, that's an interesting part of the, of the backstory there. Got yes. one back here. Is there a path to uh, overturn the recent decision of Citizens United? Um, yeah, uh, elect presidents who will appoint justices who don't like the decision. Um, the current Supreme Court, and I'm not being facetious, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but, you know, when you cast your vote for president in November, you know, one of the most important things you're doing is selecting the person who will be selecting Supreme Court justices who will serve for decades. I mean, this is a very legitimate grounds on which to cast your ballot um, for president. Now, um, is there... But, but let's just take the Supreme Court in its current configuration. In its current configuration, the Supreme Court is not going to cut back on Citizens United. They, even in the two years since Citizens United, they've expanded Citizens United. If you believe as the current Supreme Court does in the two central metaphors of that case, that corporations are people and that money is speech, you have to deregulate American campaigns. And that's what the court is in the process of doing. Um, they, are, they are saying that government attempts to limit how much money anyone can give to any candidate are fundamentally suspect, if not outright unconstitutional. So Citizens United in this current court is not some end of the road. It is merely a middle step towards a complete deregulation of campaigns. You know, this year we had Shedlin Adelson uh, giving $10 million supporting the um, uh, presidential campaign of Newt Gingrich essentially single-handedly, but he had to do it through a super PAC, through these, these sort of straw organizations. It's quite clear to me that they are going to say, well, they can just give the money directly to the campaigns in the future. I mean, the, the Citizens United is not the end of the line by any means, unless the composition of the court changes. Yeah. Okay. Or you... uh, and I Thanks. Um, in light of the last question, in light of your comment earlier about the super appeals court um, idea that was back a few decades, um, I was curious if historically or even now there's ever been a move to change the structure of the Supreme Court? Well, you know, uh, that, that, w w when the Constitution was passed, it was ratified in the late 18th century, um, how shall I put it? People died a lot younger than they, used to, than they die now, which is it's very good that people live longer. But, but 
you know, I don't think the framers of the Constitution had in mind that justices would be appointed in their 40s and serve until their 80s. Um, and the idea of these long, long tenures um, is, 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 I think, increasingly problematic. A lot, of, a lot of people have problems with that. And, you know, Stephen Breyer gets asked this question a lot. What do you think about term limits? What do you think about uh, mandatory retirement? And he has an interesting answer. He says, you know, I don't have a problem with either one of those. The only thing you have to make sure of is that the Supreme Court is your, is your last job. We shouldn't have Supreme Court justices angling for some future job, which I think is, is an interesting point. Um, there's a very interesting proposal uh, by a group of law professors to basically have 18-year terms staggered every two years so that um, every president would get two appointments per term, but there wouldn't be this premium on nominating young people, and I think the chances of that proposal being adopted are approximately zero. Um, it you know, there, there's a lot that all of us would change, I think, if we could start from scratch with the Constitution. Uh, I would get rid of the Senate. I would get rid of the Electoral College. Uh, but um, it's very hard to amend the Constitution, and that's what it would take to change Supreme Court terms. And I don't see the groundswell of, of feeling necessary to do that. Um, so I, I just don't, I mean, I, I agree it's a problem, but um, I don't think it's going to change. And on that happy note, I will just thank you all uh, for coming. Thank you. By the way, I'll be happy to sign books downstairs. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tubin. Thank you, Dean Haddon. And you can purchase books from the Ivy Bookstore right over there, and Mr. Tubin will be signing right back here. Thank you for coming. <laughs>